All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is episode 47, another analysis episode, this time with Mashable's Christina Warren. I'm not sure if I've said it on the show yet, but I've certainly said it on Twitter. I've been having a bear of a time working on the next chapter episode, the one that I'm doing right now about Amazon and the rise of e-commerce generally. Basically, when it came to Amazon, I didn't feel like I had an in or an angle on the chapter. Basically, what more did I think I could add to the basic story of guy decides to sell books on the internet, guy decides to sell everything on the internet, and then basically guy takes over the entire world of e-commerce. So to help me out, I wanted to talk to somebody who covers and analyzes tech companies for a living to try to help me work through, in my mind, an interesting way to tackle Amazon and e-commerce in general. And Christina Warren, the senior tech analyst for Mashable, certainly does this for a living. You've probably seen her or heard her everywhere from CNBC to This Week in Tech. She was kind enough to talk with me about Amazon's place in the tech universe, Jeff Bezos as an entrepreneur, and even to break down what we think might be the four or five main business models for the internet, of which, of course, e-commerce is one. So think of this as a sort of primer episode for my coming Amazon chapter, which hopefully will be coming in a few weeks, as well as our general pivot to begin examining e-commerce. Be sure to look for Christina's work on Mashable.com, and you can also find her on Twitter at film underscore girl, and she also co-hosts a terrific podcast called Overtired, so look that up on your podcast app of choice. Anyway, here we go with Christina. Christina Warren, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So it seems like 
you and I read a, a lot of the same books. <laughs> we do. We do. It, it, like I found my, my internet twin when it comes to reading about uh, tech history. Although your library definitely has mine beat. We have a lot of the same books, but you definitely have more. Have, uh, have you always been... Uh, you've been a journalist for a better part of a decade now, but even before then, were you always sort of into following sort of the the horse race of the companies and things like that? Always, always. And in fact, I'm a, I just turned 32 and I, when a lot of the, the early web 1.0 stuff was happening, it was right when I was really getting into tech. I really got into tech and computers in 1995. And so I was devouring every magazine and, and book and, and newspaper article and, and web article I could read at the time. And I was heavily involved with those things back then when I was kind of coming of age. And, and it's always remained a passion of mine. And in tech history in general, even going back to, you know, cycles before I was really kind of cognizant, um, have always been interesting to me. Video game history, uh, computer history, uh, web history, any of that stuff is just a, a true passion and always has been. Yeah, it's interesting to me to to do this as a project because, it, it, like you, I've sort of been reading it as it's been happening. You know, yep. as as soon as I got into the industry, you know, got my Business Week and, and Fortune subscriptions and everything. But um, sort of going back, you know, with with the um, with the lens of time and stuff is is different because I find myself like asking so many questions that are like more fundamental than I would have at the time, you know, like at the time when, especially in the late nineties, when the dot-com stuff was happening and there was like a, a new dot-com every other day and <laughs> it just seemed to be coming randomly. But now I find myself like trying to answer where all these things came from, you know, definitely. and, and like, I'm, I'm looking, I'm spending a lot of time thinking right now about, um, you know, the basic decisions that people made in terms of um, creating a business model on the web. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. And it, it's so funny because I remember when I was wanting to learn about the about computers and, and the internet, um, I went to the library and this was in 1995 and I checked out, I wanted to, to learn about two different things that summer. I wanted to learn about kind of the internet and, and modems and computer history and, and how computers worked. And I wanted to learn about the stock market. And I was, I was 12 years old. And I remember mentioning this and the librarian goes, well, not modems and the stock market together. And I was like, well, separately, but I guess they could be together. She was like, oh, well, no, they'll never be together. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a few months later, you know, Netscape's IPO happened. And, uh, you know, within a couple of years, um, I actually had Yahoo stock worth $400 a share that my mother would not let me sell. And I was a minor and so uh, I had $20,000 worth of stock options that were not able to be exercised. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but that, that, that was my only real run with kind of the dot-com stuff. But no, but it's something I've thought a lot about uh, as I've looked back on things, you know, 20 years onward, is, yeah, what was kind of their business model? What was kind of the plan? What was the game plan? And it's interesting in the context of what's happening with startups today, because especially, in, and as I've said to you before, you know, I'm a big fan of your podcast, when we, and when I revisit either through text or through your podcast or through other things, and I look back at these early business models, it's funny to juxtapose them with today to see how much things have changed. And in many cases, how much things haven't changed in terms right, of, yeah. you know, almost, the, exactly. Almost more, more that it hasn't changed. Like that's, that's kind of what is almost maybe upsetting is too much, too strong a word, but it's kind of upsetting me to realize how much 
most of the internet is is basically just advertising supported the same as it ever was you know the same as it ever was and you know and and that's i mean and that's i think not just a thing about the internet that's a thing about media in general you know is, is advertising supported by nature uh you know you look at television you look at radio you look at newspapers um but what is interesting to me too is is advertising has obviously become the big model but also the fact that you know getting big enough until you can figure out a way to make money. You know, that was kind of the, the conceit going in with, with AOL and with, well, not, not with AOL as much, but with definitely with Netscape and, and most certainly with Yahoo and some others. Um, and that's still kind of the conceit now, you know, you have companies like Snapchat, which are getting these ridiculous valuations, you know, um, and I, I was on CNBC last week. Um, and I was talking about, you know, well, I, I don't know if Snapchat is the next Facebook or the next Groupon, you know, it's one or the other. Um, but, you know, even though the rain and some revenues, the big idea came some, seems to be, well, if we've got this many hundreds of millions of users, there's got to be a way to monetize this. We'll just figure it out once once it once we get further along, and and that made sense in the kind of the um, I think you know 20 years ago when the web was first breaking and they were truly these new models, but in 2015, it's interesting that that still is the acceptable practice and that venture capitalists and and hedge funds and you know people who you would think maybe would want something more concrete are very comfortable investing in things just on the premise that we'll figure out a model once we have enough eyeballs right and you know there's there's a famous jim clark quote where he says when when they when he gets convinced by andreessen to 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 let's do a browser it's basically it was based on the idea that he saw the web was growing, you know, X thousand percent per year. And he's like, you know, with that, that kind of growth, you, you've got to be able to make money somehow. And so that's almost like that's the origin story to this day, almost of every company. And do you think like maybe it's it is the idea that the 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 web and the Internet itself, it's limitless. Like, so, you know, if if anything takes off the potent you could any any app any idea could go from one user to 6 billion users like there's there's no barrier to how big it can go and so that that's that's the one play that still works i think that's true i think that's true uh with a couple of caveats one of the biggest caveats being at this point and something that i think is has come up really in the last 5 years that we didn't see and certainly was not as big of uh, a barrier 20 years ago is just the the international and kind of the geopolitical barriers that are now taking place on the web because mm -hmm. you know 20 years ago um the web was very much uh, a, a european thing but very much an american thing and kind of american companies led the way and they still kind of continue to lead the way but when you're talking about very serious issues about censorship and about uh, different policies and different legal constraints and and what is and is not allowed to be shown in certain places um, we're starting to see, I think, for the first time, once the web has truly gone global, that you can kind of have these pockets and these sorts of services that can do very well in certain markets, but maybe can't scale other places. And then that becomes a concern in a global business sense, you know. Um, and, and for that reason, I think that's why you look at things uh, like WhatsApp, which, you know, Facebook paid you know, $16 billion for uh, before some of their additional options, you know, the, the whole deal is, is, is valued closer to $20 billion. Uh, and a lot of people are saying why, and it kind of makes sense to me in the sense that they already had this, not only this huge user base, but this huge user base in countries that Facebook might not have as easy of an inroad of getting into. Right, right. Uh, and then you look at things like Alibaba, you know, which obviously you know, the smartest thing Jerry Yang ever did, ironically, mm -hmm, was, mm -hmm. was was investing in that. Um 
you know, its biggest biggest tech IPO ever, and and they've got this humongous market in one country primarily, uh, mm-hmm. and and they don't even necessarily have to go beyond that to to be extremely successful. And because they are Chinese, they have a huge advantage in that space that someone like an Amazon and a PayPal and certainly Google most most importantly, I think Google has really hard time getting into that into that market. Well, and and hasn't I think it, maybe it was Ben Thompson or somebody this week that was talking about. You know um, th- that that Chinese phone company. How do you say that name? Xiaomi. Xiaomi, and, and about how they almost, you know, everyone's waiting for them to enter the U.S. market, but they he he was saying they almost don't have to. They don't need no. to. No, no. I mean, in fact, I, I mean, and I would agree with him completely on that point. I would say that Xiaomi, which is uh, right now, I mean, they've they've basically, I think, become the fourth biggest phone maker in in, in a year. Uh, they are one of the biggest in China. They are a Chinese company. They are well known for making very good looking, very solid by all accounts phones that have a UI, which is frankly directly ripped off from Apple. Um, and, and they have really good marketing and they have a huge kind of brand awareness. Um, but they would have massive, massive problems trying to enter the U.S. market. You know, Apple would sue them. Uh, the same thing would be true for Europe. And and in, and in fact, I mean, it you, it begs the question: Would it even be worth them entering in those markets at all? Do they even need to? Um, I, I mean, I think their bigger question is: They just raised forty five billion dollars. Is you know they need to make sure that they don't burn out too quickly because we've seen that happen with other companies. We've seen that happen with HTC and and some of the other makers. You know they're in a very different sort of market than software. You know their hardware market is very different, but it's very true also that they don't they they are becoming so big primarily selling in China and and Hong Kong and Indonesia and India um, that they've been able to be you know vying for the top three spot of of, of phone makers. Um, and that's without even bothering with with Europe or the United States. Well, let let me cycle back to the, then to, to to thinking about this idea of, of a of a business model on the internet or on the web, because you know help me help me try to wrap my mind around this. I, I've been trying to do a thought experiment because I'm working on a chapter on Amazon now, so we're getting into e-commerce. So I'm I'm trying to put myself back in 1994 when the web is taking off and, and um, you're somebody that wants to be an entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos and you look at the web and you try to think, how can I make money on that? Right. So I think, I think you kind of alluded to it. Like the, the web first and foremost, right. Is a publishing medium. I mean that if, if, if we're looking at it in 1994 eyes, not knowing what we know now, that's what it would look like to us. Right. Absolutely. So the first thing you would think to do is, I don't know, uh, put up a magazine or some sort of content play, right? No, definitely. And I mean, and that's what we kind of saw. Some of the first things that were happening were, you know, web pages and, and kind of proto blogs. And, and you know, as, as your past episodes have shown, you know, the, the media companies, to their credit, as much, um, you know, tweaking as we like to give them for being slow on the uptake of the web, especially the newspaper industry, actually, remarkably, many of them were very, very prescient about right. how important it was. I mean, they were there in the BBS days. They were there in the online service days. Mm-hmm. It was easy for them to then move to the web. I don't think they anticipated how greatly the web would change things and their bigger business models in terms of advertising, especially classified ads. But well, but, and but, also, but they were there. Right. And, but also, I think that the, that media has always had a problem that it's never really solved which at the at the birth of the web, the web was very much anti-commercial. So remember, yes. you know, people were even afraid to put ads up. So if if the first thing that people thought of was let's do a media play, and then the the logical extension of that is we'll support it with advertising. 
even that was a risky play at the beginning. It was. I mean, especially since the the you know the early web was all around colleges and universities, uh, which of course, yeah, I mean, had kind of an anti-commercial play by its very existence. So yes, kind of commercializing this and going into an advertising play, you would risk you know um, uh, making users angry. You know, Yahoo experienced their first of many, many backlashes from their users, you know, when they started doing ads on the directory. And people said, oh, no, we want this to be pure and free. Um, but, but that was actually, that becomes an interesting thing, too. At the same time, I think the reason that maybe the, the commercialization aspect dissipated a bit is that you had these two, um, you know, kind of volleying uh, theories where one was everything should be available for free. And then the other thing is, okay, well, how do we support this? How do we make this you know, exist. And, and so advertising kind of became the lesser of the two evils. If it, right. it, it and, comes and down to paying versus no access. Or uh, a subscription exactly. model or something like that. Well, and you mentioned Yahoo. So then I'm thinking, so that's the second obvious business model is, is you create a service that helps people onto the web or helps people navigate the web. And that's exactly what Yahoo does. But they too, their only logical business model then becomes advertising as well. So those are our two first ideas for business models, and they both come back to advertising. Funny right, enough. right, exactly, which I think is why, you know, you're working on your Amazon chapter. They then became so interesting in that kind of having this idea of commerce right. and, okay. and getting so, rid of the middleman. So that's what I want to get into. So Amazon, it turns out, is not only, you know, the dominant e-commerce player to this day, but it was also one of the first. And in a way, I mean, I know that there are – hundreds of thousands of, of small and large and various sized e-commerce companies out there. But I'm, what I'm trying to struggle to, to wrap my head around is how is it that Amazon is almost the player, the, like, you know, if you think of offline commerce, there's, there's Home Depot, but then there's Gap and there's Walmart and there's, you know, um, people specialize in various industries. So I'm trying to, uh, that's what I want to kind of get into here is, do we have any idea how it is that Amazon was the first and maintains its complete dominance in e-commerce? I think that they were the first to really get the logistical aspect. And that became such an important part of all of it. You know, they could get you your your book, uh, you know, when they started out and, and then eventually moved to CDs and some other things, you know, in a couple of days. And it was from this huge catalog of, of items. And they very, very quickly opened up, you know, distribution centers all over the country and then all over the world and could make it so you could get what you wanted as quickly or with very little, you know, compromise as, as if going to a local store. And... The fact that they were able to kind of do what, what frankly, what Walmart did in, in the physical retail space, uh, Amazon has done in the online space, which is just basically have a great network of a huge variety of products. And they didn't stop. You know, I think that they didn't worry about encroaching into other aspects of business, but they also stayed committed to their core philosophy. It would have been really easy, for instance, in 98, 99 for Amazon to get into the grocery delivery space mm -hmm. uh, like Webvan did. 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was a space that frankly was a great idea, uh, you know, 15 years ago, and it's still a great idea 15 years later. And now we're finally taking off and you have Amazon, uh, direct and there's fresh direct in New York and there's Peapod and some other places. And, and Google has a local delivery and there's Postmates. And finally, it seems like online grocery delivery is becoming a real thing. But if Amazon had done that 15 years ago, I think that would have taken away from, you know, the, the already kind of low margins they had, uh, and, um, or non-existent margins and, and pull them away from their core business. So I think it's two things. I think it's one, they were willing to um, be agile and kind of get into new areas, but also willing to say, oh, we don't need to be in this particular market. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is fascinating to me that they have become the the big behemoth and they were the first one. Um, right. I mean, I think part of that is name recognition. Part of it is branding. Part of it is good customer service. And, and I think part of it is probably just really good leadership on the part of, of Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm also thinking that Possibly, you know, a lot of the the casualties of of the dot com era were basically pure play e commerce uh, companies like Toys dot com, Pets dot com, yes. things like that. So I, I'm I'm wondering if if maybe that's you know uh, an alternate history that that is not getting enough credit is that because Amazon was able to survive the the Holocaust of the of the of the bubble bursting they were left sort of standing with no peers, essentially. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's a big part of it. I think what Amazon also did, which was really smart, was that early on they started signing up partnerships with the physical retailers. So they took, you know, for a long time they did Target's um, online, um, you know, commerce delivery. They they did stuff for Toys R Us. Um, So, you know, you would buy through those companies' websites, but it was powered by Amazon. And even though they don't have a lot of those relationships anymore – uh, because those companies got too afraid and, 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 and moved on and created their own, um, you know, uh, versions in-house, that kind of kept them top of mind and mm-hmm. kept them kind of integrated. So I think that, yeah, you're absolutely right. The fact that the, the, the you know, Pets.com and, and eToys and some of these other services went under uh, Value America. Uh, there's a great book. Um, I can't think of uh, the guy's name right now that he wrote about his time at, at Value America, which I remember from from getting a great mm-hmm. deal on a DVD player on in 1999. And it was mm-hmm. supposed to be this, you know, this, this multi-hundred million dollar um, online venture that, that went public and, and, and crashed and burned and was a huge fiasco. You know, having all of these sorts of surviving that, as you said, I think, yeah, A, left them with very little online um, infrastructure left to compete against. And at the same time, unlike the, the media industry, who at least was aware that the internet was, was going to become a competitor – uh, it took traditional brick and mortar companies a really long time to understand how completely and utterly the web was going to change their business. Yeah, exactly, and and then almost um, got hampered because then when the when the bubble burst, there was a lot of thinking that well, that's a fad that's passed. That's a fad that's passed, yeah. and and instead, what happened was that um, you know being online became more ubiquitous, and this I need to have this now mentality became even more and so amazon just i think you're absolutely right i think more i'm thinking about it just by simply surviving that gave them you know uh frankly kind of a a level of like kevlar to go Mm -hmm. up against anything else you know they survived the the decimation of of the dot-com bust uh but um and, and they came out of it and and then once they were able to survive everything else it turned out that the rest of the retail world still hadn't gotten their stuff together to actually have the infrastructure in place to compete online. And so they were able to get bigger and bigger. Well, and I'm also wondering, you know, I'm remembering um, a company like CD Now. Yes, which Amazon bought. Uh, right. Um, uh, later on, 
But so early on, they were doing CDs before Amazon got into CDs. Yes, so, they were. so for a period of time, it was Amazon is for books and CD now is for music and things yes. like that. So again, that would be the analogy to the, the offline, you know, um, Home Depot is for tools and, and Bed Bath & Beyond is for homeware and stuff like that. But I'm almost wondering if, again, it's it's maybe something structural in e-commerce because if we try to do counterfactual thinking and we imagine that CD Now had tried to go toe-to-toe with Amazon. And so when Amazon moves into CDs, CD Now tries to move into books. And then they both start to you know go into to movies and all the other things that Amazon went into. But that never would have worked because what would you have had just these these two parallel systems of these warehouses all over the country and i'm almost wondering if it's something structural like there can only be one everything store i think that that's probably true although i think that the mere existence of the department store kind of disproves that a little bit because you know you had macy's and riches and gimbals and mm-hmm. sears you know all existing at the same time and, and bloomingdale's and and nordstrom at the higher end um and and kind of the old general store you know you have walmart and target and i think that certainly i remember because i was buying a lot of digital media between 99 and you know, basically kind of the, the online collapse of that stuff. Um, I was buying a ton of stuff online in those days. And I remember that price became a really big consideration. You know, I would I would order things from 800.com and then from CD Now and from Amazon mm-hmm. and, and from uh, Buy.com, buy. yeah. yes, which is still around, and uh, although it has a different name. And, um, you know, eBay had various stores, and, and there were, you know uh, – there were just there were a ton of these different services, so there were kind of some competing things, and I do think that maybe it's true that there's only room for one everything store in one sense, but I also think it's a matter of who was able to do it best. And Amazon was really good, mm-hmm. really quickly at getting their distribution centers, which is something that I don't think CD Now ever really did. Right, they had this great catalog, but it was basically like. I can go to this. I go to CD now and I wait a few days because it's way cheaper for me to get this than to go to FHM or wherever or Blockbuster Music. Right. But it's, you know, but, but the experience is, is going to be basically be kind of the same catalog, whereas Amazon, A, I would get it cheaper. B, I would get it really fast. Well, and that's kind of interesting, coincidentally, because, you know, today there's all these articles popping up about Jet.com. You know, yes. and and so obviously, if if you don't know the story, I'll link to the Business Week article in the in the show notes. But um, uh, Mark Lore, who was the founder of of Diapers dot com and the Quidisi, the company that Amazon eventually bought, is now taking another run at Amazon um, and doing. I guess it would be it's it, it sounds almost to me like um, Amazon Prime exclusively (laughs) you know what i mean like so essentially you would pay almost like a sam's club membership and then he the the promise is that jet.com would be cheaper than even amazon i don't know i that that's going to be interesting to see if that again i'm just wondering if there is a place for like you said where there would be a a nordstrom's and a macy's you know I think that there could be, but it's it's hard when you have someone who is such a behemoth like Amazon. And then at this point, Amazon is more than just Amazon, right? Because they've got all these third-party sellers that sell things 
using the Amazon infrastructure. Right. So I think that it's almost hard to compare just Amazon because it's more than just Amazon. You know, half the time I buy something from Amazon, I'm really buying through some third party that's just using Amazon's infrastructure. And whether it be their shipping, sometimes even Prime gets included, and I'm really buying from someone else, but I'm still getting the free Prime shipping. You know, it's coming from an Amazon warehouse, but it's actually belonging to another company. Uh, So I think that it's hard, and I think that that's one of the smart things Amazon has done you know, frankly, that will make it harder for other people to create that. Uh, and then at this point, there's just kind of a, a erosion. There becomes a certain point where, like, how many places do I want to go to look for something if mm-hmm. I've had a solid enough experience with Amazon? Right. Well, right. Then that's the other thing that's making me wonder if there's only room for one. Because, again, now we have, you know, 15 years of that's your knee-jerk reaction I need something quick, go to Amazon. You don't, there's no need to shop around really, you know, unless someone can provide a a cheaper price and then that would maybe incentivize people to look around. But right. No, I mean, I usually only don't buy from Amazon at this point if it's a very specific item, if they don't have it or if the price that they have it at seems ridiculously high. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I buy a lot from Amazon, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of an Amazon addict. Right. You know what? So we were talking about this on Twitter last night. Um, so I did go back and look, and and my first Amazon order was November twenty fourth, nineteen ninety eight, and since that time I've done seven hundred and sixteen total orders. So that's not I haven't it's more than seven hundred sixteen items, but those are seven hundred and sixteen separate orders since November twenty fourth, nineteen ninety eight. My first was on uh, December twenty fourth, nineteen ninety seven. And I don't know the total that I've had, but I can just say I've already had six orders alone placed in 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the first thing I bought was Bogart, a book, a, a biography of Humphrey Bogart by A.M. Sperber. And the very first thing I bought was um, a, a was a, it was the I Love Lucy book by Bart Andrews. Mm-hmm. So uh, see, we're it was classic Hollywood, right? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm looking at my list here. Here's a I Omega zip drive. Uh, 100 oh, megabyte nice. zip drive. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, what's interesting also, like I I had a hard time. I've sort of been delaying getting into Amazon as, as a subject because I don't know. I was I was kind of stymied by it because it sort of seemed to me like, OK, we already know the story. It's kind of boring. It uh, starts in books and then it becomes this juggernaut that's everything. And then th- the other problem is, is like, it's sort of it's sort of um it's weird because Jeff Bezos is sort of an enigma it seems like and yet he's the most quoted guy <laughs> that I <laughs> that I've worked on yet like you can literally find hundreds and hundreds of 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 interviews on him and yet at the same time the thing that was kind of stymieing me a little bit is I feel like it was it's it's all this uh hagiography this this all his quotes and all his interviews just serve the legend of of amazon you know uh being triumphant and becoming this juggernaut so actually what's been my in to to starting to write this is that i had completely forgotten how how much amazon actually did stumble and how many mistakes they did make and so that's sort of been the thing that's animating me finally getting started on this chapter is that I'm interested in sort of not, not to knock Amazon down a peg, but almost to, it's more amazing to me because now I'm looking at all the ways 
that they screwed up all the all the money that they blew and um how close they came to going under. I remember when Amazon was a $5 stock in like 2002 and stuff oh, like that. Oh, definitely. I remember when they made a profit for the first time. Right. And that was such a big deal. I mean, there was well, a time. Well, it still is kind of a big deal if they make a profit. It, it is. Well, right. But 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 what I mean is, you know, when they yeah. were still, when literally, you know, Enron had just happened. September 11th had just happened. Right. The, it the was almost, it happened. was proving and, that it was possible. And I remember, I, I think it was January or February 2002, because I can remember where I was standing on the subway in college my freshman year of college, I can remember where I was standing when I got the the text alert or something, you know, from like CNBC or something, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and being shocked, frankly, that they had finally posted a, a quarterly profit. And I mean, there was a time when we didn't think they were going to last because, as we said, when we went through the list, if you were to look at the Super Bowl of, of 1999, 2000, to right. see all those dot com companies that advertise, almost all of them are gone, and almost all of them were gone within 12 months. And Amazon, which did stumble a lot and which grew tremendously and grew super fast and then had competition from everybody, uh, the fact that they not only managed to survive despite, you know, um, the, the different problems they had, but have continued to really become a humongous player, you know, and, and have kind of dominated and continue to dominate the e-commerce conversation in the United States or in, 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 I guess, the Western world anyway, is nothing short of stunning. Mm-hmm. This is the question that everyone kicks around a lot, but, you know, Amazon's almost 20 years old now and still can get by with, you know, not showing a profit on a regular basis for 20 years. And so everyone is like, can that go on forever? How long can that possibly? It's it's like the assumption that everyone makes is that in Bezos's mind, they reach a level where, all right, we've grown this out fully as far as I think we can, and now we can throttle back a bit and you know make our our five to ten percent profit margins, and we're as big as Walmart, and so that's that's a, a money printing machine. But what if what if he never does that? I mean, can 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 it go on forever, not making money, you know, on a regular basis? I mean, just from a a, a Wall Street point of view. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I mean their stock is still. I mean, it closed yesterday at at two ninety six. Um, I mean, it was down, you know, one point one seven percent. But I mean, it 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 closed at. I mean, they're still they're trading at almost three hundred dollars a share. Uh, so I think Wall Street considerations, and obviously I think Wall Street considerations and actual business, you know, uh, tangibility and, and and solvency and what of a company are different things, right? So like that, they're they're, they're different kind of measures. But I think that. Um, as long as they can remain profitable in some sectors and as long as they can continue showing growth um, and, and that they're not losing market share, they're not losing users, they're not dying and, and, and losing to other people, I think that Wall Street will continue to give them the benefit of the doubt. The problem is, and we're starting to see this when they start to kind of take these big moonshots like the Fire Phone and getting into areas that are really kind of outside of their, you know, um, ouvoir and fail, frankly – that becomes much more of a problem. You mm-hmm. know, it's a much bigger problem for them to take down a couple hundred million dollar write down on a failed phone uh, than it is for them to not show profits in other areas because the phone shows two things. One, it, you know, you've invested a huge amount of money for unsold inventory, not to mention what the R&D costs were and the other, you know, stuff that went involved in it. But two, you know, what are you really thinking about going forward for getting the, the next generation of customers to use your product? That that article uh, was it Fast Company I think or, or um, yes yeah where they talk about 
the, you know, the behind the scenes of the fire phone thing. Um, there was one quote in there where, where they had a contingency plan for maybe what they would do is, um, you know, give the phones away free if you had an Amazon Prime thing. But instead, what what Bezos wanted to do was go high market and compete with Apple on, yes. a, on a on a phone that really wowed you. But all I all I could think of was, okay, that would have been the revolutionary thing. What if all of a sudden they had announced, hey, listen. We'll subsidize a completely free phone if you're an Amazon Prime member. That would have completely, really shaken up the market, don't you think? Uh, I think it could have. It would have totally depended on whether or not there was any sort of carrier subsidy involved. And this was a conversation I had a lot in the lead-up of the phone's announcement, and then after it was announced, I went on a lot of uh, financial news programs to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And. That was something a lot of people were expecting, frankly, is they were expecting Amazon to have the phone be free or nearly free or, or very low cost, kind of the same strategy they've taken with the, the Kindle Fire tablets, which are um, very well-specced and, and priced very aggressively or at least started out more aggressively priced maybe than they are now uh, compared to the competition. Um, but I think – I mean – I kind of understand Jeff Bezos's point of view, which is saying if we're putting out a product that's as good as the iPhone or a high-end Android phone, then we should charge for it accordingly. The problem is it wasn't really as good, and they kind of were asking people to make a lot of compromises that you wouldn't have to make if you just bought a Galaxy or an iPhone. Uh, but I think that, honestly, too, you know, giving the phone away for free is fine, um, but Amazon already sells and actually make you know, you can get a lot of free cell phones new with contract mm-hmm. um, on, on, on the web, uh, on Amazon already, frankly. Right, you know, most right. of their phones are sold that way. So I think the only thing they could have done that would have been really game-changing, and unfortunately they just don't have the market position to do it, no one I think except for Apple really does, and Apple is in no position to even need to bother with this, would be to be making some sort of concession about data, you know, some sort of amount of free included data with the phone or some sort of subsidized plan. Um, that would have been the only thing that would have maybe moved the needle. And even then, I think at this point, you know, my my biggest criticism of the of the Fire Phone was uh, when it came out in Remains that they were entering a very very saturated market very right. late. And so, you know, it's not enough to just be a good product. It's got to be a great product. And I think you'd have to have more than gimmicks than just really low cut pricing at this point because you're entering a very very saturated market where people are already kind of entrenched. And you've got to give them a very good reason to give up their existing phone for yours. Uh, and, and that's the problem that everybody's facing. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the problem that Microsoft has faced and, and the Nokia has faced mm-hmm. and, and anybody else. So, you know, BlackBerry. So, you know, I think that there were a lot of kind of problems with that. But I think that that would have been the one thing. I mean, maybe if they'd had a really great pricing structure, maybe if they'd had some really something really solid on data, they could have done that. Um, that would be an interesting thing to see. I mean, you know, they did that with the with the Kindle, and that was a really big kind of selling point of, oh, you know, we've got, you know, free, um, uh, you know, 3G access or, or whatever, you know, on the original Kindle to download books and, and do, like, web browsing. Um, bringing that to the phone could have been interesting. I think that would be more compelling maybe on um, on a tablet product. I don't know. Um, I think it would be interesting to see, you know, if they're able to do something like that down the line. You know, Google's made a lot of investments in, in data, and uh, I think maybe the only way Amazon could do that is if they really kind of got into the to the wireless data space and kind of mm-hmm. created their own carrier, so to speak. But I, I don't know. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Yeah. I, you know, I... When I interviewed Ben Slipka, we we ended up talking for almost another hour off the air, <laughs> and we kind of got into this um, line of of you know the 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 horse races between you know the apples and um, Android and all this stuff, and and we sort of went down the road that I think about a lot, especially in the last six months. Actually, since I you know got the most recent iPhone, doesn't there come a point where you can't make a phone thinner? And you can't, what, what other, you know, one of the problems with the, with the Amazon Fire Phone was that it had that sort of fake 3D thing that, what was the use of that? Right. Like, you know, computers reached a point, at least desktop computers, where at some point all you would really get would be a faster, a bigger hard drive and, and, and faster chips. Right. And I'm wondering, aren't, aren't we kind of reaching that point when it comes to phones because... Sure, I'd love to have a faster one. I'd love to have a longer battery life. But beyond that, there's not really, you know, I'll look like an idiot as soon as something really revolutionary comes out. But, you know, what if we're reaching that point with phones that we did reach with desktop computers? Oh, and we definitely have. And I think the main reason we have is exactly what you said, battery life. Um, I mean, at this point, you know, phone processors, if you look at them, sure, they're becoming more efficient. GPUs are getting better. You can do more quality gaming in certain types of imagery. Um, but we, they've kind of plateaued if you're just going purely on specs. You know, you can eke out some better performance. But there's not a huge amount of difference, um, the camera being the biggest difference, I think, between the last couple of iPhone revisions. And I, I get the new iPhone every year, and I, I test in my job um, pretty much every phone that comes out. And at this point, you know, comparing a phone from a year ago, a year and a half ago to one today, there are not huge differences from, from from the tech perspective. And I think that's primarily because of battery life. And so until we reach the next huge breakthrough for battery life, which is kind of what happened on desktops once, you know, Intel released the core two line, once they kind of got into into the thinner chips, the more energy efficient chips, that did change the game. But there was probably a, you know, a, a three year period um, on desktops where, you know, it didn't matter. And um, even now we're kind of reaching that point again, where they're trying to just get them to be as, as power efficient as possible. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's holding everything back. And so software is not really going to be able to go to the next level until we can have better battery life, which can take advantage of these, these faster processors. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the, the, the situation, the timing situation that Amazon found itself in too. It's not just that they entered a really, uh, saturated market. It's that they entered a saturated market at a time where, it's really hard to differentiate your product from someone else's. And at this point, most of what's differentiating the products are, are the platform features. And so 
this is, I think, Amazon's biggest kind of, you know, problem with, with doing a phone is that their strategy all along, we've seen this with the Kindle, we've seen it with Prime Video, we've seen it with their cloud services, and, and we've certainly seen it, you know, going all the way back to their e-commerce stuff, is that they want to be kind of equal opportunity for every platform out there. You know, Jeff Bezos's vision has been to make Amazon available anywhere. Um, and so if you are going to offer your own platform, you sometimes have to make the decision, do we do that at the expense of the other platforms we've supported? And if we do that, does that mean that all these iPhone users and Android users who use our Kindle apps and, and our, our, our instant video apps and uh, our music apps and our other services won't be able to use those things, that we're going to make it an Amazon requirement? Um, and, you know, that, that becomes really difficult if you're someone like Amazon who really deals in volume and really wants to get as many people as possible using your stuff. Mm-hmm. You, um, you mentioning phones and chips and things like that made me, you reminded me of the the other article that I've been kicking around all week. Um, I mentioned to you last night was um, Nilay Patel's uh, thing about Facebook being the new AOL. Facebook is the new AOL is the title of it. But yep. it's a fun little just. And BuzzFeed's you know, the, uh, Buzz the new Yahoo. Google is the new Microsoft. Yes. Uh, Facebook is the new AOL. Apple is the new Sony. Because, and his, his, his reasoning there is that um, since Apple doesn't really grok services, um, that's a weakness that's hobbling them. And Yes. But the one that I'm thinking about right now is um, he, he says that Qualcomm is the new Intel in the sense that you know, Qualcomm with Android is sort of like the Windows, the Wintel, Windows and, and Intel, uh, you know, partnership or marriage or duopoly of, of the 90s. And I, I'd i like to do these episodes because it gets into things that maybe I won't have, I won't be able to do for, for the podcast. And I, I probably won't cover Intel in any great depth, but I was, that made me wonder and I've wondered this for a, a while now, when we think of things like, you know, I've covered uh, Microsoft missing the web and then racing to catch up, and, you know, Facebook had to race to catch up with mobile and things like that. The biggest question that I've not seen a lot of people talk about is how is it that Intel has missed mobile? Do you do you have yeah. any any insight into that at all? Well, it's interesting. It's a question that I, I bring up with Intel every time I talk to them. And every time I talk to them, they say, oh, no, but we're doing all these great things with mobile. And I'm going, no, you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting, kind of the rise of ARM. And I would say I think that, that Qualcomm as, as Intel is probably a, a, the best, most tangible analogy that, that, that could be made. But I would say that it's probably more specific that ARM, the right. ARM platform itself, is what Intel is now. And, and that's absolutely true. I've actually been – it is a really interesting thing that Intel – continues to dominate on so many platforms and they're doing you know they are you know amd is is a shell of there was a very brief period of time where amd had the opportunity to maybe usurp intel Mm -hmm. in certain types of market share and in certain types of performance specs Uh, but after the quarter line came out they basically lost lost the 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 trek there and and amd is not even really even trying with mobile you know i mean they've kind of a little bit but, but they're not even in the game um so you're basically looking at the different arm fabs you know qualcomm samsung um some of the other companies both uh, ti was there uh you know and and then you're looking at um you know intel what they're trying slowly but surely to kind of do and it's interesting i think that intel was so they're so stuck on the idea that they both you know um fabricate and design their own chips um versus you know 
most of the arm companies would just kind of you know take a platform and then right. you know license the technology li- license the technology and then, and then create it to their specifications you know they're so proud of that they're so proud of their heritage that i don't think they wanted to give up any ground to anyone else i have not it to me it has not been clear why intel has not just become an arm licensee mm-hmm. uh, because i think if they did that and they would put the resources into that they could take a humongous portion of qualcomm's business simply on their brand name right and it's almost it reminds me of you know what people used to say about uh the the automakers in the 70s and 80s and and th- that they they couldn't break out of this mindset of making these enormous cars even when the market called for other things it i'm wondering maybe intel has has basically been on this treadmill of moore's law for 30 yes. 40 years and it was always about faster 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 you know and that's not what phones and tablets needed in a way phones and tablets just needed something that wasn't the the top of the line wasn't the fastest but allowed you to have a better battery life so it, it exactly was, it was almost energy efficiency they needed um it to be cheap they needed it to be small and um yeah i mean and i think that's been the big thing that's happened i mean it, it is interesting at ces this week you know Am- uh, intel showed off some really super small chips and some interesting projects to me the most interesting was actually this thing called the compute stick which is basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a chromecast but it's a full pc and it's kind of frankly taking cues from the raspberry pi and and from like the chromebooks and it's you know um a, a quad core atom um processor two gigs of ram and 32 gig um of uh, flash memory um and uh it's 150 dollars, and that includes windows 8.1 has a micro sd card so you can expand the storage full usb port bluetooth wi-fi um and it plugs into an hdmi port so you can literally plug it into a tv or a monitor and you've got a full computer so then the idea is is that you you carry around your computer in your pocket and you just hook it up to whatever screen you're around when you want to right do something yeah totally and i mean i think that when you've got but to me what's interesting about that is that's showing that they have the full package set clearly you know without even even with a windows license and and i know that microsoft has cut their prices significantly but even with a windows license and and that sort of power they've got that into something that's you know the size of 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 a chromecast and i'm thinking okay why can't you take that and then extend it to a tablet or extend it to something else and that we're finally starting to see and i think that'll be kind of the next big the one potential, I think that phones for Intel are basically a lost cause at this point. But what they might be able to make up some ground with is on kind of the tablet and kind of small form factor PC space. Um, you know, the the Chromebooks are are becoming a big deal. My dad got one and 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 really likes it. And I didn't think that he'd ever have a non Wintel machine. Uh, my mom is a Mac user because she's smart, and uh, but my dad is on a Chromebook. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, but but HP just released. Uh, this uh, the Stream 11 um, full Windows, you know, 11 inch laptop um, that's uh, 200 bucks, and it's actually not bad. You know, it's it's a pretty decent machine, and it's it's uh, you know Intel powered, of course, and um, you know, so they're doing some some of the really interesting kind of low cost computer stuff. But yeah, I, I don't know how they miss mobile. I think you're dead on. That's a question I've asked Intel numerous times and it's a question of asked their competitors frankly and people who've used to work there I'm going how did they miss out on this and i do think that the car analogy makes sense i think they were so kind of ingrained in doing things their own way and not wanting to give up any ground to anyone else uh, and then i think that you know there probably were you know different management issues too you know you've got this long-standing relationship with microsoft you know do you want to give that up and 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 risk hurting people's feelings i mean who knows but 
at some point I keep predicting every year and every year I've been wrong, but every year I keep predicting, okay, Intel is just going to become an ARM licensee mm-hmm. because I figure if they did that and they gave it their own spin on things and their own kind of Intel goodness, cause they design great chips. They actually really could have the potential of, of, of giving Qualcomm some serious competition. So how come uh, you didn't get to be one of the lucky few uh, out in CES this year? <laughs> I go almost every year, and yeah. uh, I, I was running things from uh, from our home base in New York. We had we sent a great team this year, but mm-hmm. you know I, I go almost every year, and it's kind of gotten boring if I'm being honest. Yeah, you know I I, I say that to people. Uh, I only went once a few years ago, and. The, you know how everyone always says every year about South by Southwest, oh, it's, it's not over. what it used to be. Yeah. Yes. The year to go to CES was like 2009 or 2010 or something. One of those years, the year that, that um, the Palm Pre was announced. 2009, yes. Yeah, because that was, you know, right after the iPhone, right before tablets. Like that's when, you know, <laughs> you were, that was the amazing CES to go to when you legitimately felt like you were seeing new things pop up, you know. Well, what's happened is that the companies have realized that they can have their own events and get just as much um, concentrated press coverage as they would if they spent a bunch of money at CES. So even the Samsungs and, and the Sonys and, and you know companies that have big presences at CES aren't doing as big things there as they used to because if they have something big to announce like Samsung does, Samsung can just have its own event and get everybody who's going to show up at CES to show up at their own press conference. Why, right. why bother competing against a million other people? I mean, that's something Apple figured out years and years ago, and that's why Apple stopped doing Macworld. Um, but, you know, they, they, did, they still did Macworld for years. But eventually Apple realized, well, we don't need to do this. We can just have our own press event. Samsung's realizing that. You know, Sony's kind of hurting for money. Um, Panasonic is getting into different businesses. And so you kind of got this weird thing where a lot of car companies are there and showing off some interesting car tech, and you've got a lot of smaller companies there, and then a lot of foreign companies that are really trying to kind of get um, – exposure to to the u.s um audience um so it's it's a different show than it used to be you know microsoft doesn't do it anymore yeah um, i i, I the, the year i went it, it turned out to be um balmer's last keynote that yes. I, I got to so i'm glad i got to see that you know that was a, which was amazing it was kind of amazing to see his last kind of stand and yeah um i was i was at that one too and uh no i mean it's just it the show has kind of changed and it's interesting too that i think just the the trade show in general has changed tremendously you know we used to have comdex we used to have um you know these really big trade shows and and they've gotten smaller and smaller over the years there was like this period of time when you would have a huge trade show for almost anything and everybody would show up and that was actually really common even during like the the dot bomb you know i remember going to different linux conviction conventions in atlanta and uh you know e3 was in atlanta a couple of times and and um so was you know there used to be a summer and a winter ces ces mm-hmm. used to happen twice a year mm-hmm. um it's just it's it's the market has just shifted i think well that's those were the things that were on my agenda but um i uh wanted to open the floor to you um and that includes feedback on the podcast or or um questions or anything that you think i should be covering or anything like that well, as I said, I said to you um, earlier, we'll have to, we'll have to cover this maybe at another time, but we have to talk about GeoCities. Oh, you know what? Go ahead and tell me that story real quick because um, when I when I spoke with uh, uh, Chris Higgins a while ago, he was talking about being um, a, a CompuServe moderator. 
Yes. So you were a GeoCities moderator? They had those as well? They did. Well, we were called community leaders. Okay. And basically what we did is we were unpaid tech support, basically. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we would answer people's questions about HTML and um, various problems kind of with the service, help them around. And then we were given um, a list of sites that we would have to kind of go through block by block uh, because GeoCities was arranged in neighborhoods. And so Mm -hmm. you would have, like my website was in the Pines neighborhood of the Silicon Valley section. So it was like Silicon Valley slash pine slash something 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 and i'd go through blocks of of sites you know you were given a number like i think mine was 4316 or something and and you'd go through blocks of sites to make sure that they adhered to the different terms of service you know so there was no porn there wasn't linking to to wares um you know everything was kosher and um just you know go through kind of like a checklist sort of thing and I applied to be – I was a teen community leader. I applied when I was 14 in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I did that um, even after the Yahoo acquisition. Um, and then some people sued Yahoo, I believe, over the unpaid community leader program. And so Yahoo shut it down. Right. So you were – you we were making an hourly wage or something? Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, <laughs> I, I got, I got um, a hat, uh-huh. a T-shirt – uh, 50 shares in GeoCity stock when they went public. Oh, okay. And a, a $25 Amazon gift certificate. That's how I ordered my first item from Amazon in 1997 because I was 14 and I didn't have a credit card. And my mom wouldn't let me buy things on the internet. Um, and so I got an Amazon gift card. But I did get 50 shares in GeoCity stock. And then that converted to Yahoo, Yahoo. stock. And well, that was when Yahoo went to $400 a share. And I'm begging my mom. I'm like 16. I'm like, mom, let me sell this. Oh, so see, you did get compensated. You're acting like you weren't, you didn't make any money out of this. Well, I didn't because (laughs) I wasn't able to because I would have made like 20 grand. I would have made like $20,000. Right, right, right. If I'd been able to sell. But yes, but, 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 you know, the, the stock thing was when I signed up for it, there was no idea they were going to go public or they would ever become, you know, it was a pure volunteer effort. Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Because at least CompuServe, you know, you were you were helping them out, and they were giving you free time on CompuServe. So. Oh, well, that was okay. Actually, you know what? I take that back. We did get um, so I got my own custom domain. So instead of being mm. geocities dot com slash Silicon Valley slash Pine slash four three one six, it was geocities dot com slash tilde cew five. So I got a custom domain. I got more web space, and. Um, I think that it, my stuff was ad-free because they introduced the this little watermark thing before the Yahoo acquisition, which was kind of annoying. This this you know this uh, this thing that looked like a little watermark that was kind of an ad bubble that would exist on your site. And so, um, by being a community leader, you got more space and uh, a custom domain. And I think that was why I actually probably signed up, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. I mean, it, I was. I was in the eighth grade, so it's really hard to remember. But I also think I just wanted to, to help people. Do you remember what your what your page was then? Like what 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 were you writing about? What was your... Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so just uh, things that I liked, movies I liked. Um, I did a Windows ninety five and Windows ninety eight tip of the day section. Oh wow. Um, I had a software and hardware reviews. Um, can you tell that I was kind of <laughs> become a tech journalist? Yeah, yeah. I was basically doing. If I'm being completely honest, I was writing a lot. Of, I was writing editorials about things. I remember writing editorials about Napster and about you know online commerce and about um, uh, reviews of the Oscars and um, basically the same things that I do, you know, fifteen, mm-hmm. uh, seventeen, eighteen years later as a career. I was doing as as a teenager on my Geo Cities website. Yeah, I'm. That's gonna be 
a couple chapters from now, I'm definitely going to go into because the thing about things like GeoCities and the Globe and and other sites like that is yep. you know people like to think that or maybe some people know, but that that social networking you know started with with Friendster and, and things like that. <laughs> no. But there was a lot of people that were doing what we would now call or or attempting what we would oh. now call social networking, social media in, oh, in the 90s. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I was on ICQ. Uh, mm-hmm. My ICQ number started with a one. Um, you know, we had chat rooms. We had, um, I mean, I have like a little chat room thing on my website, you know, a little bot thing. And I had people that I would talk to on, on ICQ and on AIM. And um, I mean, there are people that I'm still Facebook friends with that I met through GeoCities mm-hmm. 20 years ago, hmm. almost 20 years ago, you know, 18 years ago. And, um, you know, there was definitely a real community that was happening there, and, and you met people that way. Um, you know, LiveJournal, which I, I joined very early, um, to me was was my first real kind of what I would call modern social network. You know, we had, you know, friends lists and, and kind of the – I mean, it basically was Tumblr um, just, just earlier on. But no, I mean, it was – there was – very much the same kind of social hierarchy stuff. I mean, there are people, there's, there's a guy I met in a Smashing Pumpkins uh, chat room mm-hmm. in 1996 that I'm still like online friends with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's funny for us to think that it happened, you know, in the 2000s, but this stuff was happening. And, and frankly, I mean, if you want to go back to the well and things like that, right, you know, right. CompuServe, BBSs, it was happening then too. But I think that uh, definitely the web kind of community, I mean, your homestead, which is kind of what they called them, you know, was very much um, the same thing as your Facebook page now or, or your Tumblr or anything else. You know, for me, that's as a high school, as a middle school and high school student, that's what it was, was my digital home expression for myself. You know, it's where I put photos and, and kind of, you know, had autoplaying MIDI files. I'm cringing at myself just saying that and would play with <laughs> JavaScript and, and, and I would do reviews of things that I liked and, and write updates about my life. And, um, you know, learn about other people's things. And it was just kind of a way to express, you know, your fandom for something or your, your affinity for something. And it was great. You know, you just made me think of a way that we can bring this completely full circle. So going back to 1994 and our, our business models are put put a, a media play on the web, uh, create a service to help people around the web, and then commerce. So then the fourth and... Uh, I really think that these are the only four real business models that have really kind of worked on the web. The fourth business model for the web is just allowing people to connect with each other, just to just communications. You know, yes. essentially that, as I said in the in the AOL chapter, it was it was the that chat was rooms. What made AOL. Yes. Yeah, it was the chat rooms that was driving everything. And and now to this day, with with the chat apps coming back and and now taking over the world. Again, maybe maybe the ultimate business model for the web is just letting people talk to each other. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's the sort of thing where people are willing to pay for it in some cases or they're willing to put up with advertising. They're willing to have kind of incentives. But, yeah, it's all about connecting people. That, to me, has always been what's made the Internet so special from anything else is the fact that you get to connect with people in ways you wouldn't otherwise. I mean, you and I are talking about this right now, right? Mm-hmm, Why mm-hmm. are we talking? Because of Twitter. Mm-hmm. You right, know, right. Um, I've had – I've had so many opportunities in my life that have come about simply because of the web that I never would have had otherwise, you know, networking things. And I've met so many interesting people in real life and just online um, over, you know, my, my, you know, the 18 or 19 years that I've been online. And it's, uh, it's, it's really stunning to me to, to look back. I mean, my, the first thing I ever posted on Usenet was on alt.tv.mero's place when I was 11 mm. <laughs> and 
and I did find that posting in a Google archive at one point. I've mm-hmm. got it saved someplace because it's funny. Um, and, you know, I think about the fact that even back then it was a way to connect with like-minded people that you wouldn't necessarily find other places. And I think that's what it is. I think that's what draws us all to it is we want to be able to talk to other people. We want to be able to meet other people and find new ideas, new perspectives and share about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, but you did, you did forget one other business model. What's that? Porn. Right. But that's media. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because it, like I said in the in the porn episode, I don't know if you've listened to that one yet. Um, I haven't listened to the porn episode. In the end, porn has suffered from the same thing as all other media. You're d- be- yes, yes, because it's become free and kind of right, yes. right. It's it's basically a zero marginal cost good, like every other digital piece of media. The difference being, I think that sometimes there's uh, it has a few advantages and disadvantages of other types of media. But no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I I have always uh, joked, uh, kind of personally, that it's one of the the you know four pillars of the internet is is, mm-hmm. is porn. But mm-hmm. but no, I think I think media. I think is the probably the right way to to kind of put that there. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, helping me think think <laughs> think through all these <laughs> concepts as I'm trying and still thrashing my way through this Amazon chapter, but. Um, um, great conversation. Thanks for um, thanks for talking with me. Thank you for having me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.